The following content is explicit. It's Tuesday, May 24th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Our nation reels again at another mass shooting. This one at the Uvalde, Texas Elementary School. That has left at least 15 people dead, not including the shooter, who was also killed by police, an 18-year-old. Right now, as we try to gather the evidence and watch the news and comprehend this repeat horror, we tell ourselves that our fellow Americans are probably involved in all the same activities. When we talk to our friends and family, maybe around the dinner table tonight, we'll compare the similar stories of what we saw, what we've heard, how we're all just wondering how this can happen and why this keeps happening. But we're not all actually involved in the same truth-gathering pursuits. I mean, right now, the NRA is wondering if they should pause their national convention that begins in Texas this weekend. They're not wondering hard. They're going to go ahead with it. Representative Tony Gonzalez of Texas's 23rd, where Uvalde is located, is probably huddling with his staffers, not actually wondering if he should take down the part of his website that says, I am a strong Second Amendment supporter and received a perfect grade on my NRA questionnaire. But maybe thinking about changing the graphic of a woman with a handgun proudly holding a bullet-riddled target. Right now, Ted Cruz, Greg Abbott, all the other strong gun-supporting Texas politicians probably waiting here from law enforcement to see if uh, there was an armed guard at the school. If there wasn't, there's blame that can be laid. The insufficiency of armed teachers or police in the school, that is a familiar point to emphasize. And these same images that we're watching, these helicopter shots of the school, these contextless three-second clips of people running to and fro, shot on iPhones held the wrong way, CNN plays them on a loop. These images are literally right now being scoured by conspiracists who will soon begin to mount a false flag narrative. These narratives are prevalent in certain media circles. They're actually pervasive after every mass shooting. It is an odd psychosis and no good comes of it. It tortures the actual victims, the family members of those who were killed. But I wonder... Can any of our future mass shooters instead be redirected into being a false flag believer? That would probably help the carnage abate. Over on the 4chan message boards, they're not behaving like everyone else. They're snarkily, if not celebrating, they're feeling vindicated. What do you expect, they say? And then they mock the shooter, his looks, his race, his weakness, every once in a while. And again, I don't want to give the impression that the 4chan message boards are close to an equal mix of horrible and less than horrible. But every once in a while, someone will post something like, here's one. How can we keep our guns and stop little children from being murdered for no reason? It feels like these two things should be able to coexist. Oh, that guy's pilloried, don't get me wrong, but I just wanted to give you insight into another subset of Americans, and even there, there's 
at least some flicker of consciousness that this shouldn't be the way things are. Personally, I'm waiting to see what types of guns were used, usually in a mass shooting with many deaths. And right now, this is the 10th deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history. There's the likelihood of an AR-15 or a semi-automatic rifle, though not always. A big determinant in the deadliness of a mass shooting is, one, the force of the rounds. Rifles cause more damage than handguns. And two, the number of times the shooter has to reload. But a handgun can easily have, they do have 15 to 30 round magazines, more than 30. It's a special extended clip. But this means that, you know, 15 dead children at close range, that that's possible, even with a handgun. The details of this shooting might adhere. They might deviate from what we usually see in a mass shooting. I do think we should curtail AR-15 sales. Such a weapon might not have even been used in this Uvalde Rob Elementary School shooting. The last point is the questioning of what can be done. And I know that to stop asking this question is to some extent to give up. And I understand the instinct. What can be done? Well, we can at least have hope. And how do we show we have hope? By earnestly asking questions like, what can be done? I understand that. But I would like more Americans to realize the important point is what already has been done. We made our choices, or to a large extent, had choices thrust upon us. When a society makes big, important decisions, there are consequences. America has made totally different decisions, radically different decisions from our peer nations, far different from the UK, far different from the Scandinavian countries or Australia, and therefore we have very different outcomes. We've made fairly different policy choices from Canada, and we have fairly different outcomes. Canada and U.S. experience closer to each other with our legality of guns and handguns and up until recently AR-15s in Canada. We have many mass shootings. Canada has some mass shootings. Mass shootings are unknown in the U.K. So what can be done? It's not the right question. What can be undone? And too much can't. But of the part that can be undone, I understand politics enough to know that it won't be undone because we choose to live like this. On the show today, I spiel about a modest proposal for vasectomies in Oklahoma. But first, James Stavridis was a four-star admiral who is Supreme Allied Commander of NATO forces. He joins us once again to talk about the war in Ukraine and the lessons history can teach us. His latest book is To Risk It All, Nine Conflicts in the Crucible of Decision. James Stavridis up next. In the late 70s, a brotherhood of criminals lived by one unbreakable rule. Yeah, don't snitch. Those who did ended up in the ground. He had dirt under his fingernails like he had tried to dig his way out. 
And when their own kids turned on them, they would do anything and they didn't care who they had to kill. The Killing Month, August 1978, is the new podcast from WRAL. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. James DeVritis could adopt the Rock's bench press regimen and he still wouldn't have a chest expansive enough to contain all his accolades. I'm not just speaking of his 50 medals he acquired during the course of his military career. He is a four-star admiral. He was Supreme Allied Commander at NATO. He's the Vice Chair of Global Affairs and Managing Director at the Carlisle Group, the Chair of the Board at the Rockefeller Foundation. And his new book, which brings him back to the gist, is to risk it all, nine conflicts and the crucible of decisions. Admiral, welcome back. Thanks for coming on again. Always a pleasure. Good to see you, Mike. So I really like this book. And so the listener understands these are case studies that exemplify, of course, not just naval tactics, but leadership tactics, thinking under pressure. But the book was written and had to have gone to the publisher before we knew there would be this conflict in the Ukraine. So I found the book to be talking about, you know, an imagined future Uh, naval or military engagement, Um, someone reading the book could say, okay, I could draw lessons and apply it to something that may happen in the future. But I couldn't read the book and not just think every time about Ukraine and how these lessons might apply to Ukraine. And my question to you is, do you think that there are some specific things here that really map onto the Ukraine conflict uh, directly? I do. And in the book, To Risk It All, as you said, there's nine stories about people making the hardest decisions under extreme pressure. And I'll pick two of them that I think really fit with Ukraine. Uh, And one illustrates Putin and the other one illustrates Zelensky, um, both of whom, let's face it, are risking it all. Putin Mm -hmm. is betting the future of Russia on this outcome. And Zelensky, quite obviously, has everything on the line. So the story I'd pick for Putin would be famous World War II Admiral Bull Halsey, who is a very arrogant character, but a brilliant warfighter. And at the Battle of Leyte Gulf, he becomes completely reckless and takes his fleet far to the north because he thinks he can take out the Japanese fleet turns out to be an enormous miscalculation, that kind of reckless abandon of an orderly strategic thinking is what got Halsey into trouble and it's gotten Putin into severe trouble. So Halsey's a revered figure in the Navy. The chapter starts off with you in the Halsey Fieldhouse. So at Annapolis, they have uh, not just uh, buildings, but there are all sorts of testimonies to him. Is it hard for you as a Navy man to have the gimlet-eyed assessment where you take one of their heroes and you're extremely critical of him? Indeed, it is hard. And yet, it would have been pretty easy to write a book called Nine Brilliant Decisions That Really Turned Out Well. But I don't think you're going to learn a lot from that. So the nine decisions in To Risk It All are uh, both some that turn out extremely well and some that turn out very, very badly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's hard because I love Bull Halsey and I spent many, many hours in that field house working out and playing varsity sports. But 
we need that, as you say, that gimlet-eyed look at history to help us understand how we can make the right decision going forward. Recklessness is generally not going to help you in a situation where you are risking it all. But to stay on Halsey for a second, when he's taught, for instance, in the war college, is your assessment uh, essentially what the um, what the young people who are joining the Navy and going to be the leaders of tomorrow are taught? Do they are they taught to revere him or are they taught that he made these mistakes and you need to learn from him? I think it's a bit of both. But the judgments about Halsey have become harsher. Uh, over time. And I think that's appropriate. And you need to contrast him with kind of his opposite number in that command in the Pacific. It alternated between Halsey and a man named Raymond Spruance, less well known, not as colorful, didn't have the kind of quick wit, didn't handle the press as well. But Spruance was that steady, quiet warrior. That's who you want to be And the more you have on the line, the more you want to be like Raymond Spruance, less like Bill Halsey. Mm, mm. So let's get get to which is the story that you think exemplifies Zelensky. Um, The one that really stands out for me is the story of Dory Miller. So here is this African-American, 1930s, not a lot of opportunities in Texas where he comes from. So he joins the Navy. He ends up because the Navy in those days is racist and segregated. He ends up as a cook. That's the only thing you can be. He's shining shoes of the officers. He's cleaning their staterooms where they live. He's cooking their meals. He's a servant on the ship. Yet when Pearl Harbor hits, the bombs are flying, the torpedoes are running hot and straight at his ship. He leaves his wardroom and goes to the top of the ship because he knows it's Sunday morning in Pearl Harbor, 7 December, 1941. You don't have a full crew on board, holiday routine. He says, what can I do to help this fight? And he first, he rescues several officers, saves lives. Then more importantly, he grabs an anti-air warfare gun that he really doesn't know how to operate. A couple of people help him put it together and he starts shooting down Japanese aircraft. He's a cook. And why is he like Zelensky? It's because... He is someone who, if you look at Zelensky, you know his background, you think, boy, it's unlikely that in the case of Zelensky, this entertainment figure, this kind of small, unassuming guy who has been, you know, political, but not great, frankly, as a politician. Yeah. Who I and might so add is from a, an historically marginalized community in Ukraine as a Correct, yeah. correct. And ends up being Winston Churchill in yeah. this story. Very little to have predicted that, just like you you wouldn't have guessed that Dory Miller would turn out to be the first African-American to win a Navy cross. And by the way, uh, the U.S. Navy announced about 18 months ago, Mike, that the next big, beautiful 100,000-ton U.S. Navy aircraft carrier, nuclear-powered, is going to be named USS Dory Miller. Wow. I hope the uh, cooks on that aircraft carrier have a special (laughs) position of prominence. (laughs) Exactly right. So this war in Ukraine has been obviously terrible and inspiring, but also very instructive. And there are just 
classic ratios of uh, the amount of troops needed to advance and the amount of troops or number of troops needed to defend a territory. And they've been set in stone for a while because we haven't had too many test cases to actually square our perceptions of this with the real world. Another ratio, for instance, that has been rethought is the killed in action to wounded in action ratio. So we're learning things about war because we haven't had a war like this. Most of the things that I read about are infantry, fighting on land. What naval lessons has this war taught us? Speaking as you do, not just from your own place of uh, knowledge, but having written this book that goes back through naval history. Um, I'll make a book recommendation that lines up with this a bit. And it takes you back to the 1980s and the Falklands War. Mm -hmm. And here you have a British powerful flotilla that goes down to retake the Falkland Islands at the end of the earth, all the way at the bottom of the South Pacific. And the Argentinians are fighting them. And it becomes a pitched battle, land-based air against these seagoing ships. And it's a very near-run thing, but the Brits uh, eventually triumph. The book is called 100 Days by Sir Sandy Woodard. I mention all of that, Mike, because yes, we are learning lessons now, and they are very reminiscent of the Falklands, which is to say the flagship of the Black Sea, a big, powerful 9,000-ton cruiser, Slava-class cruiser, was sunk by Ukrainian missiles fired from shore. Mm -hmm. um, really makes you question the vulnerability of yeah. these big surface ships like the Moskva or like the USS Dory Miller in a few yeah. years. And here's, here's the key lesson, two lessons. One is that technology marches on and risk, back to the book, to risk it all, risk increases. And there is increased risk to tanks, to all the weapons of war ashore, but also to those at sea from these kind of missiles. And the second point to be made is you can still use these big platforms, but you have to protect them. You have to think about their cyber protection, their physical protection from missiles, their defenses on the ship itself, their ability to conduct what we call damage control, fixing yourself after you're hit, keeping afloat. Muskva failed all of those tests. And thus the lesson is competence matters. There's more risk out there. I would argue you can still conduct combat operations on these big ships at sea, but there is more risk. In fact, the Moskva was the first ship of its kind sunk in a conflict since the Falklands, the General Belgrano, right? Exactly. Um, mm. Very good for you knowing that. That's, <laughs> Belgrano was the Argentine uh, heavy cruiser sunk with about 800 lost. Moscow, probably 500 died in that sinking. By the way, the British lost a handful of ships, smaller yeah. ones, destroyers and frigates. So war at sea is uh, like war ashore. There will be casualties. There will be sinkings. People will die. We just need to be prepared for that. When you heard about the Moscow, uh, I've read about it. I didn't know the name of the ship. It was touted as the flagship of the Russian Navy. Were you aware of it beforehand? Was that a name? If someone said that to you, that would evoke uh, something specific? 100%. 
Moskva means Moscow in Russian, and the ship was named after the capital, Moscow. And this would be the equivalent of the U.S. Navy's big nuclear aircraft carrier, USS Washington, USS George Washington, named for both the president and the city. So yes, I've been aware of the Moskva for a couple of decades, going back to the Cold War. It's an iconic, legendary Russian ship. To lose it in combat to the Ukrainians uh, is a remarkable blow to the morale and pride of the Russian Navy. Now, from what I know, uh, as you mentioned, the Slava-class cruiser was made in 1982. Do we have any ships that old and that vulnerable in our Navy? Um, our, in, in short, no. Um, we have a few that were built in the late 1980s, but they've been upgraded. Um, examples would be uh, what are called Aegis cruisers, um, roughly equivalent to the Slavas. But what we've done is take those cruisers built in the uh, late 80s and early 90s and, and upgraded them significantly, put new radars, new steel into them, new missile systems. Um, ours uh, have not languished the way that the Slava evidently did. Her systems were clearly outdated. She was unprepared for what was waiting for her coming from the Ukrainian shores. Yeah, and it would seem to be an example, which is something in the book, to risk it all, of uh, an example of hubris. The yeah. Russians should have known this. They shouldn't have been caught short that a Neptune missile could have destroyed them. I, I would say a combination of hubris and probably uh, corruption because there's so yes. much of the Russian fleet and the Russian military that is just not up to snuff. And you have to think that oligarchs siphoning off important needed uh, material has something to do with that. It does. And uh, without question, let's face it, Russia today is a kleptocracy. People steal what they can. They are not interested in the long-term future of their own country from what I can see. And as a result, it's not just ships, it's also uh, their tanks break down. Their armored personnel carriers can't run very well. Their logistics chain, you know, the, the least glamorous, but in many ways, most important part of war is logistics. It's getting the food, the fuel, the people, the heating, the communications. You've got to be able to move that to the point of battle. And, and the Russians have failed in, in truly dramatic ways. And I think corruption has been a significant part of it. So let's keep on the uh, question of the Moskva. Representative Joe Courtney, who I'm sure you know, he chairs the uh, Sea Power and Projection Forces Subcommittee of the House Defense Committee. He wrote in Defense News, if a relatively low-cost, short-range missile such as Neptune can destroy one of the largest ships in the Russian Navy, how do we ensure that ships in our fleet are not doomed to the same fate? Now, the answer is you equip them and you understand that uh, we're in a different kind of war where uh, relatively easy to get and acquire missile like this can cause the damage. But others have said, essentially, if ships in general are this vulnerable, does it call into question the overall effectiveness of the Navy? So you could take those, I guess, two questions, however you want. Uh, first and foremost, um as we said earlier about Moskva, this was a failed operation on the part of the Russians. They did not 
employ the ship in a way in which it was itself defended. We would do that with our big aircraft carriers. They would have a ring of steel around them shaped by those Aegis cruisers we were discussing a moment ago. Secondly, on the Muska, they they performed very poorly in their own use of sensors. Their fire control systems were evidently not prepared for action. And third, and finally on this point, they did not have effective damage control. They didn't know how to save their ship, how to plug a leak, if you will. Believe me, our sailors know how to do that. We know how to use our own weapon systems and we know how to employ our big ships. So I think it is way too soon to say we're not going to operate ships safely at sea. And frankly, when we do that, so what happens to the 95% of the world's shipping that moves on ships? In other words, if we can't make the surface of the sea safe for warships, what about all the other ships that we uh, protect and provide sea control to? So way too soon to write that off. Having said all that, Mike, um, we need to be mindful that the dial of history is turning here, and we need to be prepared to put, I think, more resources in our, for example, submarine force which is highly lethal and far less vulnerable in circumstances like this. We need to put up um, our own uh, counter air systems on drones. We need to develop lasers. That's really the next generation in air defense. So there are a lot of technical solutions to this, as well as apportionment of resources. But the, the bottom line, is that we we should not think of this as an on and off switch, as in, oops, carriers are no longer any good, let's get Mm -hmm. rid of them and put everything in submarines. It's a dial, it's a rheostat. You do need to move the dial to put more resources in those 21st century systems. That's kind of the lesson of the war in Ukraine, I think. There have been some lesser covered um, hits on Russian craft, I think, they call them raptor boats in Snake Island. It does seem, uh, it does seem the Ukrainians are having success. Although, let's be cautious. There is always the information imperative that the Ukrainians are going to talk about yeah. how great they're doing, and we're going to want to hear that, and we're going to discount how the Russians are doing. But would you say the Ukrainian Navy, or at least the anti-Russian Navy forces, are doing just as well as the land forces are? Uh, yes, I would say that in, in relative terms, because remember, the whole Black Sea fleet is, is really 15 to 20 warships. And so they've already sunk two. Um, I don't know if you, you caught the one in, even earlier than the Musk was sinking. They got another one in port, and right. they have reportedly taken out a couple of smaller patrol craft level vessels. So they're, they are, they, the anti-ship land-based Ukrainian forces are definitely getting their licks in. And the Russian Navy, it almost feels like um, the admirals watch the generals do horribly, which they have been. And then the Russian Navy almost said, well, hold my beer, watch <laughs> us blow it. And they uh, stepped up and lost their flagship. Hey, listen, Mike. When you go to Annapolis, the U.S. Naval Academy, the first thing they teach you is don't get your flagship blown up, you know, <laughs> kind of protect your flagship. Uh, yeah, it's good. They, they say that in retail also. It's important. <laughs> it's called a flagship for a reason. Yeah. 
And join us tomorrow as the good Admiral and I will be on to discuss more, including how the Ukraine war might end. Spoiler alert for Putin, it probably won't end as badly as some of us would have hoped. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. And now the spiel. The state of Oklahoma has on the books a total and complete ban on abortion, all ready to go, when and if Roe versus Wade is overturned. In fact, Oklahoma seems to have gone with a belt and suspenders and condoms and IUD approach to this measure, as K4 Channel 4 Oklahoma reports. Authors of House Bill 4327 call it a second layer of protection to Senate Bill 612, which is already signed into law and criminalizes abortions, making doctors that perform them felons. This afternoon's bill gives private citizens the authority to sue doctors that perform abortions, also extending the liability to anyone that knowingly helps in an abortion. But it does not allow for the woman seeking an abortion to be sued. Oklahoma criminalizing anyone who gets advice, gives advice, knows about, gives driving directions, or possibly drives a city bus that stops within walking distance of a facility that provides abortions. You can also sue Google or possibly AT&T for providing insights into how to have an abortion or a conversation with someone who could advise you about an abortion. And if you are an Oklahoman, I think you have the ability to sue anyone who makes a rhyme too similar to contortion while freestyle rapping. Oklahoma State Rep Mickey Dolenz has reached out to his Republican colleagues with an idea for a bill he's drafting. Then I would invite you to co-author a bill that I'm considering next year that would mandate that each male, when they reach puberty, get a mandatory vasectomy that's only reversible when they reach the point of financial and emotional stability. The bill, the State Neonatal Implementation Program, or SNP, does not in fact exist. I named it SNP. And I have to say, I don't exactly get the one-to-one correlation. I know what he's going for here. I mean, this bill would be the clever, sarcastic answer if Oklahoma were considering mandatory tubal ligation. I mean, the closer analogy would be to put the sperm itself on trial or, you know, at least finger the provider of the sperm on that long list of criminally liable parties, along with doctors, caregivers, cab drivers, and supportive gamers in the comment sections of Twitch. But hey, if Mickey Dolenz wants to monkey around with Oklahoma law, I'm a believer in his right to do so. He's got to do something to make a point and get attention. And as Dolan's admitted on MSNBC, none of the actual aspects of legislating were working. So why not pitch a vasectomy? Uh, To just prove a point of how absurd and ridiculous it is to regulate one's 
bodily autonomy. I'll be on the record to say I don't believe that government should regulate anyone's reproductive system. But in, in this case, it seems to have really resonated. Time and time again, House Democrats have brought up data, facts, stories, and nothing has uh, hit quite like this uh, mandate on the male's reproductive system. Well, I'll give him credit for creating a moment. And he's a Democrat in Oklahoma. There are 18 Democrats in the state house against 82 Republicans. That's not the biggest imbalance. Wyoming has seven Democrats in its state house and 51 Republicans. And in the other direction, Rhode Island and Massachusetts are overwhelmed by Democrats. Hawaii has one Republican in the state Senate, one out of 25. There are four Republicans in Hawaii in a 51 seat state house. There's only so much you could do in Oklahoma. So Democrat, state representative, gay man as well, Mickey Dolenz is doing what he can, fighting a satirical reality with the satire of proposing a vasectomy. So Mickey Dolenz, I actually give you credit. I mean, if anyone really wants to do much more than fight the actually ridiculous with the warranted ridicule it deserves, well, I'm sorry. You're in Oklahoma. The last train to Clarksville has left the station on that one a while ago. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the just assistant producer. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperu, jeeperu, dooperu, and thanks for listening. 